Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Antioch. Uh, My name is Rick, and I have the honor to serve as one of the elders here at Antioch, and uh, perhaps in that role as elder, I can give you a little bit of an update on our pastoral staff. So our senior pastor, Pete, is on sabbatical for the summer. Pastor Sean is at a family reunion this weekend. Pastors Amy and Linda, who were traveling together in Europe, contracted this virus that's been going around. And that leaves Pastor Cal, who you've already seen more than enough of this morning, and and Kip, who's our executive pastor, who will be accepting applications for any and all positions. So just grab the connection card from the seat in front of you, scribble down a quick resume, and identify what area of ministry you'd like to be the pastor over. Kip will get back to you very shortly. Uh, So we'll be in uh, the passage that Gary read for us in Luke 10. Now, before we dive in, let me say a little bit more about myself for those of you who don't know me. So I have graduate degrees in two very different disciplines. One is in Christian apologetics, so a sort of theology slash philosophy degree. The other is in biology, and specifically, I'm an expert in birds of prey. So I've made a career out of taking very seriously Jesus' admonition to consider the birds of the air to learn how the Father has designed them and how he provides for them. And so I can explain to you such mysteries as, for example, why it is when you see a chevron of geese flying south in the fall, one side of the V is longer than the other. It's because there's more geese on that side. (laughs) Now, actually, my my own standard of humor is quite a bit higher than that, but I I threw that in there for Pastor Sean, who seems to like that sort of corn. And if he responds, then I'll know he bothered to stream the service this morning from wherever he is. Seriously, though, um, the historic Christian church has long held that God has revealed himself to us through two books, through the book of creation and through the book of his word. And I've had opportunity to delve deeply into both those books. And one of my passions is to help people understand that contrary to many of the claims of secularists in our day, All of the latest and most important discoveries of science powerfully support a biblical worldview. That is, as a scientist, and not just a biologist, but one who's also studied astronomy, physics, geology, paleontology, I find a thoughtful Christianity to be the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live. If you need to hear more about that, I'd be happy to visit with you sometime. But for this morning, it's my pleasure to look at you, look with you at a passage that I take to describe a rather high point in redemptive history uh, from the first part of the Gospel of uh, Luke chapter 10. Uh, It's also a turning point in Luke's narrative of Jesus' life and times. As Kip shared with you last week, and for those of you who weren't here, uh, Kip hit a dinger in his first at bat. Uh, (coughs) 
up until and through most of chapter 9, all of uh, Jesus' ministry had been conducted in the area around the north end of the Sea of Galilee. But from that point on, Jesus and his growing body of disciples is uh, turning their eyes towards Jerusalem and are going to begin to make the journey from Galilee to Jerusalem into towns and cities where his ministry had not uh, been experienced prior to that. So as we see in verse 1, Jesus sends out 72 disciples to go into those towns and cities and Uh, Again, this would be the first time that they experienced either the teaching of Jesus or his ministries. Now, the number 72 echoes two other events earlier in Israel's history. Uh, The first you can read about in Exodus 24, where there were 70 elders chosen to accompany Moses and Aaron back up Mount Sinai to confirm the covenant that God had made with them. Then in Numbers 11, we have the story of 70 elders being chosen by the people, again along with Moses and Aaron, to sit in judgment over the people, as was suggested to Moses by his father-in-law Jethro. And as part of that account, Numbers 11:17 says, And I will take some of the spirit that is on you, Moses, and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Holy Spirit rested on certain people, usually prophets, judges, kings, and such, for specific purposes and for finite periods of time. As a rule, the Holy Spirit did not inhabit people lifelong in Old Testament times. It wasn't until Jesus had risen from the dead, it wasn't indeed until Pentecost, And ever since, that all who are found in Christ receive the promised blessing of the Holy Spirit indwelling him or her. So in this regard, the 72 disciples of our passage today were in the same boat as the Old Testament prophets. They were experiencing a temporary resting upon them of the spirit of the all-powerful creator of the universe, with the result that they had marvelous uh, miracles worked through them. Before we go any further, let me make a couple of parenthetical comments. The first is that there were, uh, likely there were women among these 72 disciples, even though the text doesn't tell us one way or another. What we do know is that women played a prominent role in Jesus' larger group of disciples that accompanied him throughout his ministry, and as Luke 23.55 tells us, who accompanied him on this particular journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. Earlier in chapter 8, as Luke is trying to describe this growing group of disciples, immediately after naming the 12 original disciples, it is some of the women that Luke identifies next. We also know that women would play important roles, including those of leadership and teaching in the first century church, and Mary and Priscilla and Junia and Nympha would all become the leaders of their own respective house churches. And Paul's Paul's epistles are filled with greetings to the women that he considered to be his co-laborers in the work of Christ's kingdom. I've said that these 72 disciples went out in uh, the power of the Holy Spirit, but we need to look at verse 21 to have that explicit for us. It's a theologically justified inference that as Jesus commissioned and authorized these disciples, 
It was by, the, by his Holy Spirit that they went out in power. But that is made explicit for us in, in verse 21, where Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit for the result of this commissioning and sending. And if I might make a parenthesis within a parenthesis, I can share a, a little habit that I've adopted as I do my own personal Bible study. You know, Muslims and other skeptics like to point out that the word Trinity never appears in our Bibles. And so cast doubt upon the, the doctrinal justification for that idea. So anywhere in my New Testament where I find all three members of the Trinity referred to in the same thought or paragraph, I make a little pencil triangle connecting those three persons of the Godhead as here in Luke 10, 21. Okay? Uh, but now let's turn to look at what it is that the 72 disciples were called to do and say as they went into these cities and villages and see how that uh, fits in with the Bible's larger narrative of God's purposes in creation and redemption. Pastor Pete likes to use the Mandalorian as an illustration of what's going on here. <coughs> what's that? Excuse me, my, my daughter Willow, who's back in the tech booth, is trying to get my attention. For, do, do you have a slide for that? Okay, okay, so apparently it's not the Mandalorian, but Mandorla, <laughs> which, which refers to the pointed almond-shaped intersection of two circles. So for our purposes this morning, we can think of a mandorla that represents the intersection at times in redemptive history of heaven and earth. And that's what's going on here in this passage. Uh, as, you know, we understand that there's a time in the future when this mandorla will become the whole enchilada. As heaven comes to earth and encompassing, interpenetrating, and overwhelming the present creation, which will thus have fulfilled its redemptive purpose. Uh, as Handel has it, quoting Revelation 11.15 in his Alleluia Chorus from Messiah, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. But for now, and up until now, the intersection between heaven and earth has at best been a small mandorla. Forget I ever mentioned the Mandalorian. Or we might think of it in a phrase that comes to us from Celtic Christianity as early as the 5th century. The Celts like to speak of thin places, by which they meant places and times in which the veil separating heaven and earth was so porous that God's glory would seep through to human awareness. I've said that this passage represents a high point in redemptive history, and that's because it's just such a thin place in which people living on earth experience the power of the kingdom of God in real time. So we can discern in this passage both a proclamation and a set of actions associated with this commissioning and sending. The actions specifically referenced in the Luke passage are healing, as Jesus says in verse 10, heal, or verse 9, heal any who are sick, and exorcisms, as the returning disciples rejoice in verse 17 that even the demons are subject to us. In a parallel passage in Matthew's gospel, also other actions identified are the cleansing of lepers and the raising of the dead. And all of these actions are consistent with Jesus' own understanding of the works he was 
brought to do as he in Luke 4 adopts a passage out of the scroll of Isaiah and applies this messianic prophecy to himself. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in Matthew 25, Jesus very directly uh, equates his kingdom with similar acts of benevolence and justice. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was imprisoned, and you came to me. Let me digress a little and mention uh, the snakes and and scorpions that uh, Jesus references in uh, verse 10 of Luke, or verse 19 of Luke 10. Uh, Both of these groups of creatures are part of God's very good creation, and both play important roles in the ecosystems of which they are a part. One of the remarkable things about snakes is the variety of different lifestyles they take, as well as the variety of beautiful patterns and colors in which they come. And this is a picture of my son Nathan several years back with a water moccasin that he had the good fortune to capture while he was bass fishing in South Carolina. There are five or six species of scorpion in Oregon, and though they're rather drab, brown or black in the daylight, one of the interesting things about them is that their exoskeletons fluoresce under uh, UV light. And so I recommend that the next time you find yourself camping in the heat of summer in the high desert of central or eastern Oregon, you take along a UV flashlight so that you can observe these magnificent creatures in their nighttime foraging, maybe right before you roll out your bedroll. So as the 72 engaged in uh, these healings and other uh, physical and relational acts of restoration, the proclamation that accompanied them was, the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. Uh, in, chapter, in verse 9, as, uh, as said to those who were welcoming the disciples, it served as an explanation for what it was they were about to experience, the healings and such. By contrast, in verse 11, uh, as for those who were closed to a visit from the disciples, it served as a statement of regret, as much as to say, you have no idea how narrowly you missed out on a life-changing blessing, right? Um, let, me see. let me find myself here. Oh, I should say that... Uh, Another part of the proclamation comes in verse 5 where Jesus tells them how to introduce themselves, which is peace be upon this house. So as Luke relates this, he would have used the Greek word irene for peace. But as Jesus, uh, as the actual event occurred, Jesus almost certainly was speaking in Hebrew and would have used the Hebrew word shalom. And we've come to understand that shalom is not simply the, uh, an absence of conflict, but rather is a very holistic uh, concept of complete flourishing and justice. 
Um, in fact, shalom and the kingdom of God, at least in its future perfected sense, and the redemption of creation are all ways of saying essentially the same thing. As Jonathan R. Wilson has it, if the Christian doctrine of creation means anything, it is that the telos of creation is peace. Creation will be made whole through the redemption, which brings it to its proper end in peace. Peace is characteristic of the kingdom of God, to which the people of God bear witness by their living. So the, con- the content of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel is consistently rejoice and be at peace, for the everlasting kingdom of God is coming to your neighborhood. Uh, the kingdom of God receives mentioned 39 times in the gospel of Luke, 50 times in the gospel of Matthew, and 15 times in the much shorter gospel of Mark. Uh, so Jesus' own understanding was that the kingdom, that his kingdom was not some otherworldly or spiritual kingdom, but involved the inbreaking in the, in the material creation of the then and there and the here and now. So there's a similar passage in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, which involves just the original 12 disciples and a commissioning that occurs slightly prior to the one in our passage today. In it, Jesus tells his 12 disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but go instead to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I bring this up so that I can give you a little bit of a contrast between the Gospels of Luke and the, and the Gospel of Matthew. So put in its very simplest terms, the biblical plot is that God created a very good world and a set of creatures, human beings, who were intended to be his image bearers throughout the rest of creation. Our task, uh, as intended from the beginning, was and is to create human cultures throughout the world that accurately reflect the creativity, love, generosity, mercy, and justice of our maker, while at the same time blessing the rest of creation and all the creatures that share creation with us. Of course, humanity lost the plot line by rebelling against the creator and failing to fulfill those cultural and stewardship mandates. In in much of the church today, we've lost the plot line in another sense as well. We recognize that God has entered the story himself as its redeemer, but we've failed to understand where this story goes from here. The biblical story it has human being, redeemed human beings not in some otherworldly heaven as is taught in many churches, but reigning with Christ here on a redeemed, reconciled, and renewed earth. Originally, all of humanity was to receive the blessings of God. Uh, but after the fall, God's redemption involved a two-step process. First, he chose a particular group of people, Israel, who were to receive his blessings and at the same time be mediators of those blessings to the rest of humanity 
and an example to the nations of what it looked like to obey God and to fulfill the cultural and stewardship mandates given by him. Of course, Israel largely failed in its appointed task as well. So that when Jesus came on this, into the story as the Redeemer, his too was a two-step process, at least in Matthew's gospel. Uh, first, he was to restore Israel to its rightful place of blessing and its, as, as God's elect people. And Matthew's gospel emphasizes this to the Jew first aspect of Jesus' ministry. Of course, even Matthew uh, records that after his resurrection, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go into all the world, every tongue and tribe and nation, thus to fulfill the second and larger part of his mission, which was the redemption of all humanity to their rightful place of co-heirs of creation and co-regents over creation. But Luke is the companion of Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so in his gospel, Luke makes no mention of this to the Jew first aspect of Jesus' ministry. Instead, from the beginning of his gospel, he emphasizes the all people everywhere nature of Christ's redemptive work. So last week, Kip Jones shared with us a passage from uh, chapter 9 in which Jesus and his disciples go into the region of the Samaritans to broadcast the coming of the kingdom. The week before, Michelle Jones, no very particularly close relationship to Kip, shared with us from chapter 8 <coughs> in which uh, we read about the demon-possessed man. That entire story took place in a region of Gentiles on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And we're kind of tipped off to that by the fact that Jewish farmers never kept pigs. Um, <coughs> it's also Luke who records early in his gospel in chapter 4, the scene in the synagogue at Nazareth, which we've already mentioned in Jesus' mission statement uh, passage, where Jesus' own townspeople wanted to throw him off of a cliff. Now, originally, they immediately embraced uh, his telling them that he was here to heal them and to free them from oppression. But Luke has Jesus immediately turning around and making it clear to them that this healing and liberation was not just for them, but also for the nations around them, including the nations that were oppressing them. They couldn't handle that because they had an us versus them mentality that ultimately prevented them from experiencing Christ's kingdom. I probably don't need to tell you that today in America, there are many who profess Jesus with their lips, but who likewise have an us versus them mentality that would seek to exclude others from the just, tangible, uh, life-changing benefits of God's inbreaking kingdom. Jesus makes it very clear that their entrance and ours into his kingdom depends upon our being able to confess and turn our backs on any self-righteousness, racism, nationalism, sexism, and such that we continue to harbor. Okay. So Jesus has commissioned his followers both to make more disciples and to feed the hungry, to loose the bonds of oppression, to welcome the immigrant regardless of their legal status, 
And the same call is upon our lives today. Uh, Paul's articulation of this is that God is in Christ reconciling all things to himself, Colossians 1.20, and that he has made us participants with Christ in that reconciliation and ambassadors of that inbreaking kingdom, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.18-20. through 20. And we can, in part, do some of that Uh, out of our own power and strength and intelligence and such. But if we are not submitting ourselves to the Holy Spirit, as these 72 disciples did, then we're not likely to be effective ambassadors of Jesus' kingdom. Believe it or not, there is today and among evangelicals a debate about whether the Holy Spirit continues to give followers of Jesus some of the spiritual gifts, including the gift of healing. So the continuationists would say yes, whereas the cessationists would insist that some of the spiritual gifts, like healing, ceased with the death of the last apostle in the first century. Now I realize that uh, one of the concerns of the cessationists is that there are those, think televangelists, who falsify and abuse such gifts for monetary gain or personal uh, renown. Let me say two, make two quick responses and one a bit longer. Uh, the first is that whatever you're talking about, in this case, miracle healings, the existence of counterfeits and abuse is never sufficient cause to deny the reality of the true thing and its proper use. The second thing I'd say is that uh, there were already in the first century those who were faking and abusing these gifts. The Apostle Paul recognized that and in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.21 tells his followers, tells the church that true disciples need discernment to differentiate between the true and the false. But the other thing I would say to a cessationist is this, you need to get out more. So here in uh, affluent America, we have layers of safety nets that tend to obscure the working of the divine in our lives. But the Spirit of God is working in miraculous ways throughout the world, and particularly in the developing world. Celestine Musakura, a friend of Antioch, is a peacemaker in nations torn by civil war, like his own Democratic Republic of Congo. And a few years back when he was here sharing with us some stories of miracle healings taking place in his homeland, he was asked, why, why don't we experience that? Without hesitation, Celestine responded, that's easy, you have 911. His point, of course, was that uh, we tend to rely first upon well-planned human resources and systems We have LifeLight and EMTs and wonderful doctors and nurses and dedicated medical researchers. And so it can often be that only after we've exhausted all of the human solutions and resources that we cry out in desperation to the God of the universe for our healing. But I think there's a a more basic problem than that. I, I said at the top that I believe the biblical worldview to be the accurate one. 
That means that naturalism, the view that the physical world is all there is, and so there is no God or spirits or souls or things like that, is inadequate, inaccurate, and insufficient. But may I submit to you that we Western Christians tend to live as functional naturalists. Rather than recognizing this world as utterly infused with the power of the divine, as it really is. So the passage before us is not just a cute story about some unsophisticated pre-scientific folks who experienced some strange physical phenomena and wrongly attributed to the power of the Spirit of God. No, these events really took place in the same world in which we live as a clear demonstration of the power of the creator and sustainer of the universe given to his followers in order to help accomplish his goal of restoring all things. But I think the problem goes further than just medical issues and, uh, and healings and such. We are well-educated, wealthy, technological, networked, and so essentially uh, successful and good, especially at the areas in which we've been trained. Uh, there may be times at work where we face a task that is on the outer edge of our experience and training, and in such cases we may throw up a hasty prayer that the wisdom of the Holy Spirit uh, guide us in that particular endeavor. But how much of the time in the normal routine of our work do we have the attitude that I'm trained and can handle this one, Lord, you can take a break, right? Um, God's Holy Spirit is available to us and we need to take advantage of it. Most of us would, not, would acknowledge that Jesus is the smartest person that ever lived when it comes to physics and astronomy or to the design of living cells or of living ecosystems. But we tend not to acknowledge or, or not to live as though he's also the smartest person when it comes to business or real estate or law or education or music or visual arts. Uh, he's the smartest person available to us and he's waiting for us to rely upon his Holy Spirit to guide us in our everyday most routine interactions at work, at school, at soccer practice, and in all of the relationships and interactions that we might have. The Holy Spirit knows better than we are who it is among the people whose paths we'll cross this week is in need of something that we, ambassadors of the king, can offer them in the name of the king. Okay? So in most stories, the uh, plot resolves itself and, and comes to fruition in the very last uh, chapter. Uh, the misunderstanding is hashed out, and, and in the last scene, the lovers embrace and go on to live happily ever after. Or the detective uh, discovers the perpetrator of the crime in the last chapter, and uh, justice is served. The hero comes at the 11th hour, and the damsel is saved from distress. But in the true story of creation being redeemed, the Bible pictures the beginning of the end of the story in its middle. 
The $100 theological phrase for this is inaugurated eschatology. And we usually refer to it as the already but not yet nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, there's coming a time when uh, the redemptive purposes of God will be fulfilled. Heaven will come to earth. But we also, we, we dare not wait until then to live into and live out our part in that inbreaking kingdom here and now. So in a few minutes, uh, we'll receive communion. As, as we do so, the band is going to play the, the song, God Let Your Kingdom Come. As we sing this prayer, I want us to understand that, that we're praying in two simultaneous senses. We do look forward to the time in the future when God's restoration of creation will be complete and heaven will come to earth. But at the same time, we're praying that the Holy, that, that the Holy Spirit would help us individually and collectively to be effective ambassadors of that kingdom as it's inbreaking in the here and now in which we live. So Antioch family, may we be redeemed people who moment by moment and day by day follow Christ in his reconciliation and redemption of all creation and of human culture as we avail ourselves of the power of his Holy Spirit in ordering our every thought and action. Amen. <laughs>